Uh, I loved having those kids up here, right? Um, Matt had said earlier today, like, well, you never follow uh, kids and pets, right? It's like in, uh, in uh, like on the stage. Uh, and I was saying the reason I don't want to follow him is because I'm not nearly as cute as those kiddos. And I did remind him, I'm 98% as cute, but I'm just not 100% as cute. Um, yeah, you can just feed my ego by saying, no, you're 100% as cute. No, that's good. Well, thank you. I heard that. Yeah, that was the, amen. That's right. Uh, well, thank you, guys. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, like John said. Uh, we want to welcome everybody that's here with us in person. If you're watching online, we especially want to welcome you if you're a guest with us this morning. Uh, if you haven't uh, already stopped by our info desk, we do have a gift for you. Uh, but as we jump right in, uh, I want to ask you a question. Can you remember a time when you were just waiting in expectation for something, waiting with, with hopeful anticipation for something to arrive? Uh, maybe you can think of as a child, like counting down to the days of uh, Christmas Day. Uh, or maybe as an adult, you still do that. I don't know what it is. Or even as uh, an adult, maybe you're counting down or expecting in anticipation the return of someone who's been gone on a long deployment or a long work assignment, waiting for them to come home. Or maybe even like a, uh, a kid that's away at college, coming home for the holidays, longing in expectation. Well, I can think of a few great expectations in my life. Uh, one of them is when Aaron and I got engaged. We got engaged and we set the wedding date, so sat in expectation of that wedding party, but also spending life together. Uh, and then other times of great expectations were even when we told other people we're expecting because we're anticipating the birth of our children and the gifts that they are. Uh, so certainly those are great uh, highlight expectations in my life. But when I think of expectations, I actually think of another story. It was back when I got my first full-time vocational ministry job as youth director of the church that I actually grew up in. So I was serving alongside a staff of people that I knew super well, that knew me, including my former youth pastor who now had a different role at the church, and even my brother officed his small business up at the church. Uh, so as I started in that role, the church offered to buy me a laptop to help with ministry use. So I excitedly went online, picked out the best one that I could find uh, for the budget, uh, a refurbished Mac laptop, no judgment. Uh, and then I waited in expectation for it to arrive. So a couple weeks later, I got a call from the church that said, hey, uh, there's a, a package from Apple waiting for you in your office. So I hurriedly rushed up to the church, found the package, and began to carefully unopen it. Uh, open it. So I was, I was pulling apart the styrofoam and like, gingerly lifted out the anticipated laptop only to discover it wasn't a laptop. It was a projector. <laughs> they had sent the wrong thing. So I was so deflated. I was so defeated. And I was frustrated and disappointed. Uh, not only did I not have the thing that I was expecting, I had something completely different. Uh, and I was going to have to go through the hassle of sending it back and then waiting even longer for what I originally wanted to arrive. So I immediately pick up the phone and I'm calling customer service. Uh, and they're like super confused by what happened. And so as I'm talking to them, my former youth pastor and my brother poke their heads in their doors like, what's going on? Uh, and I explained in like short, frustrated language how mad I was that they sent me the wrong thing and I didn't have my laptop. And then from behind, uh, uh, I looked upon them and these wry smiles creeped over their faces, and from behind their back, they handed me my laptop. <laughs> they were at the church 
when it arrived. They knew I was waiting for it. And they opened the box, they took out the computer, they put in the projector, and then they sealed it back up perfectly and set it on my desk for me. Uh, I will say I was pranked, but I will admit uh, it was well done. Uh, so let me reiterate, I knew all those people really well. I don't know you people like that. Yeah. So if you do that, this means war. Okay, no. Uh, but on all honesty, I'll never forget that feeling of that disappointment, that frustration, when what I was expecting turned out to be something completely unexpected. So life is full of those met and unmet expectations. And as we begin the Passion Week of worship, starting today with Palm Sunday, I don't know if this is working. It's not going through my slides, sorry. Uh, as we start the Passion Week of worship, starting today with Palm Sunday and going into Good Friday, like was mentioned, and culminating next Sunday in Easter, we remember the expectation and ultimately the celebration of our hope in our Savior and King, Jesus. So we're asking in this series, who is this King? And we will answer with remembering that He is the promised King, He's the suffering King, and He is the conquering King. And so today we start with who is this promised King? And as we'll see today, He is not the King we expect but he is the king that we need. So let's look at the story in the Bible that we actually get the name for Palm Sunday. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Open up your Bible to Mark chapter 11. And as you do, let me remind you uh, that the gospel of Mark is one of four books in the New Testament that share about the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's what we call the gospels. Scholars believe that while the author Mark, who was also called John Mark, was not one of Jesus' 12 disciples, his gospel that we have is actually Mark's accurate recording of what his close friend, the disciple Peter, witnessed. So Mark wrote down by the Holy Spirit what he learned from Peter. And this gospel is broken into two big main parts. One, chapters one through eight, speak of Jesus' identity as the promised sent Messiah King. And the second part, chapters 9 through 16, speak to his purpose in coming, to reconcile the world to God through the cross. So here we are in Mark chapter 11. After three years of public ministry, teaching, performing miracles, and making friends and enemies, Jesus looks towards Jerusalem and the cross and enters into the city one last time before his death a city abuzz with activity surrounding the Passover celebration, full of people from distant lands who have come to worship at the holy city. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, 
and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the coming, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Not nearly as cute, I'm sure, as the Hosannas we heard earlier today. But as we enter into this story together, we're going to pull out three things about this promised king that he was an expected king, but that he was an unexpected king. (laughs) And ultimately, that he was a needed king. So let's start with unexpected king. The story of Jesus' triumphal entry in the city is actually a very beautiful scene that we see here. So Jesus, seated on a donkey, entering into the town, is honored by the crowds as the messianic king, receiving the praise and ceremonial acts of worship, proclaiming his royalty. So it's important to note right off, This wasn't just simply a spontaneous worship service or coronation, but something God had prepared from the beginning of time. This was the welcoming of the expected king promised from long ago. So time doesn't permit us to walk through all the promises of God throughout history and scripture of the king that would be sent to save his people. But undoubtedly, those in the worshiping crowd would have been Jews intimately familiar with the royal messianic prophecies from God's word as they waited in expectation for the coming king. Passages like 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, when God spoke these words to King David concerning the promised king that would come after him. And God said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we do know David's son Solomon built a house for God, a temple, but Solomon's kingdom did not last forever. And that's important, a forever kingdom from the line of David promised by God. That's the key, forever kingdom. Many years later, after God said this, around 700 years before Jesus and this triumphal entry, the prophet Isaiah continued to give God's people hope of their promised future king by saying this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there are many more passages foretelling the coming king like this one throughout Scripture. Some even almost unbelievably specific in the details about his birth and his ministry and his life. But the point is, the promised king was an expected king. God's word had proclaimed he would come. And his rule, unlike any other king of Israel, would never end. So clearly, many in the crowd that day would have thought maybe this Jesus could be him. 
And if they were really paying attention, they would actually have seen before their very eyes that day, Jesus fulfilling some of those specific uh, prophecies in real time in front of them, such as the reason Jesus asked his disciples to go and get a colt, or the word could be translated young donkey, to enter the city on. It was to fulfill the words of Zechariah written 500 years earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But it's not just the the prophecies being fulfilled before them that leads us to believe the crowds hoped Jesus was, in fact, this expected promised king. Their own words and actions showed it as well. They shouted praises, even quoting from Scripture, Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. And literally, Hosanna means, God, save us. In Luke's gospel on the triumphal entry, it says that the praise of the crowd included saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were praising him, calling him the king who has come to deliver him. And no doubt, many in that crowd had been with Jesus for a while, seeing his signs and miracles, healing diseases, calming storms, rebuking demons, even raising the dead. And they had heard his teaching with power and authority about the kingdom of heaven and the need for repentance and righteousness. And they had seen the freedom he granted to the guilty, shamed, and marginalized, granting them forgiveness and a place in God's kingdom. And perhaps that's why they shouted praise to this expected king trusting in his deliverance, and they laid down before him their leaves and their lives in adoration and submission to the king. And here's what's crazy. Unlike other times in the gospel stories early when people started to praise Jesus as king, he shunned their praise. But this time in this story, he welcomed it. Why? Because he was the promised king they had been expecting. But here's where the story takes an unexpected turn. Because while we don't know all that, that were in the crowd at that time shouting Hosanna would be the same people that were going to shout crucify him later, we do know that there were at least some in the crowd that day that would be in that later crowd. Those in this crowd laying their leaves and lives down who would go from adoring this king on the road to abandoning this king at the cross. And at the very least, maybe the most heartbreaking, his own beloved disciples rejoicing over him with a singing crowd that day, but would cower and disown him before the week was over. Why? What would cause them to pull such a quick 180 on their king? Well, it's because this expected king came to save them in an unexpected and maybe even unwanted way. He was an unexpected king. And that unexpected king changed the crowd from adoration to abandonment. 
And in certain ways, it shouldn't surprise us. Throughout Jesus' life, we see people coming to him, expecting him to be one way, and discovering that he is actually something much different, like when you open up a box and find a projector instead of a laptop. And often, when they came face to face with the true Jesus, the true king, that looked very different from what they expected, they walked away. They went from adoration to abandonment. And we don't have time to bring out all these examples of adoration to abandonment. It's only one sermon today. Uh, But one great example of adoration turned to abandonment is a story that Milt actually mentioned last week, the crowds from John chapter 6. And if you remember that story, that's where Jesus uh, miraculously fed the 5,000 and broke the uh, five loaves and two fishes. um, And that when he fed the crowds, And did this amazing miracle. They were so amazed by what he did that afterwards, this is what it says. It says, Jesus, perceiving then that they, the crowds, were coming to him and uh, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king. Why? Why? Well, Jesus tells us a few verses later, they track him down and find him. And this is what it says. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has sent his seal. And in that chapter, Jesus goes on to continue to explain to this crowd, saying, you're expecting me to be a king that just provides you with food to eat, a king to satisfy your earthly cravings. But that is not ultimately what you need. It's not ultimately what I came to do. You need a king to satisfy your deeper need, your truer hunger, your need for reconciliation for redemption, your need for a right relationship with God your Father. So Jesus says, I'm I'm not going to give you more fish. I'm going to give you myself. You need to consume me to bring me into your life. That's why I came, and that's the king that I am. And after saying that to the crowds, this is what it says. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, from adoration to abandonment. They walked away because the king that they were expecting to simply grant them their worldly wants was met by the unexpected king who offered satisfaction to their heavenly need. And that was not the king that they wanted. And time prevents us from digging deeper into the other examples when adoration turned to abandonment. We think of the rich young ruler expecting Jesus to be a king that validates his life of good moral behavior. But when Jesus confronts his true idolatry and self-centered identity by telling him he needs to sell all his possessions and follow him, this unexpected answer by Jesus caused the rich young ruler to despair and turn away from or abandon King Jesus. Or later on, if you remember one of the thieves on the cross next to Jesus, that after railing insults against Jesus, insincerely appeals to his messianic claims. 
expecting if Jesus was truly a king, then he would bail them all out, save them all, rescue them from execution. And so that thief barks orders at Jesus to save them all from dying. But when Jesus unexpectedly doesn't save them from death, we don't see this guilty thief looking to submit or trust King Jesus anymore, but turns away. So whether like the fed crowds, it's expecting Jesus just to grant us our worldly wants, or like the rich young ruler, we're looking for King Jesus who affirms our self-centeredness and our idols, or like the thief, we expect Jesus to be a king that's just there to bail us out of our troubles when we need him. Expecting the wrong king leads to abandoning the true king. Or for one more example, let's go back to our crowds in Mark chapter 11. What king were they expecting that they were adoring on that road that day? And what king did they get that led many of them to abandon him so quickly? Well, again, do you remember what time of year it was? In Jerusalem, it was the celebration of the Passover. And if you're not familiar with the story, Passover was a celebration remembering the greatest story in Israel's history. When God miraculously delivered his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt. When God sent a great deliverer, Moses. And by signs and wonders, plagues and pillars of smoke and fire, ultimately through parting the sea, he, Moses, delivered God's people from slavery to freedom. Even leaving the dead bodies of Pharaoh's armies drowned behind them. It was the exodus. It's the deliverance. It's the liberating rescue. This was the celebration of Passover. The crowds praising Jesus were in the midst of preparing for. And now, on this road, God had sent his promised king to them to give them a new and better exodus. Hosanna, coming to free them once again from their new captors, their new oppressors, the evil empire, Rome. Surely this coming king is their coming excellence and deliverance from their oppressors and enslavers. Surely the expectations would be that this king, like Moses, will barge into that palace, to the throne, confront the leadership by signs and wonders, maybe even violence and might if necessary, and lead them out of their captivity. Hosanna in the highest. And yet, once again, Jesus subverts expectations. Where Moses marched before Pharaoh in demonstrations of, of plagues and power and conquered over empires and armies. No, this King Jesus rode not a war horse to the palace, but a humble donkey to the cross. This King, unlike Moses, didn't stand before those in power with speeches and miracles, but this King was arrested, accused, and sentenced in silence. Instead of leading the march of millions out of the land of their oppression, this king was alone, abandoned, and left to be mocked, cursed, and broken down by himself. And instead of opening apart the seas for, the, for God's people in a miraculous passage, no, this king, his body would be opened apart for their rescue. Instead of God's people crossing the sea, looking behind them to find drowned dead enemies in their wake, no, this king would be the one to die, to drown himself on the cross. No, this was not the Exodus king they expected. 
This is not the greater Passover Moses that they were looking for. Instead, in King Jesus, what they found was the greater Passover lamb. The one who was slain and whose blood was shed to cover over and save the people. This was not the king the crowds would have expected, but he was the king they needed. The true Hosanna to save them and us. People were constantly missing it with Jesus. <laughs> and they would abandon him because they were expecting the wrong kind of king from him. They were looking for the king they wanted, but not the one they needed. So why is Jesus truly our needed king? Better than the false Jesuses of false expectations and better than any other king or leader this world has ever known. Well, just think about it for a second. We look here at this first century story, but it's throughout history, even up until today. Think about the earthly kings or politicians, presidents or great leaders. How is our human race track record on bringing about utopia? Not great, right? We're not doing so hot. And why is that? Because if, if we're honest and we're real with ourselves, we know this. Every politician, every leader, every king who has ever lived and reigned is just a person. And because of that, all share at least these three things. It means that they can make promises, but never with true power. They can cast a vision, claim a plan and strategy for peace and prosperity, but never with complete and ultimate authority over all things to ensure those promises happen. Promises without power. And those promises often start and come from a corrupt or at least corruptible heart, right? And I'm, I'm a human too, my heart too. But power is seductive, and no one is above the pull of self. Even the best, most godly leaders that we see in the Bible had corrupt hearts. If you remember Moses, he couldn't enter the promised land because he sinfully lost his temper and disregarded the commands of God. Even King David, he committed sexual abuse and murdered a man to cover it up. Even Paul had to confront the disciple Peter in Peter's hypocrisy to the gospel, while also confessing in himself that he was the chief of all sinners. There is no one righteous, no, not one, including the kings and leaders of the world. Even the best still have corrupt and corruptible hearts. And lastly, even their best solutions, these leaders' best solutions to all the hurt and injustice and lack in this world are insufficient. Again, if you even just look to Scripture. So I recently read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles talking about the history of Israel's kings. And it's shocking how quickly the rule and reign and goodness of a God-fearing king can be completely undone by his God-abandoning successor. I mean, just done. The kings of our world make promises without power, have corruptible hearts and insufficient solu uh, solutions, or as theologian and preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the best of men are just men at best. Or as the psalmist would say, do not trust in princes, and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. 
So if we can't put our trust in human princes, fragile kings who are just men, what king can we trust in? What if there was a king who wasn't simply a man, but God in flesh, whose promises were backed up by power, and not just a lot of power, but all power. Someone to whom all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, all authority over all things, a king whose heart was not tainted with the stain of sin, but was pure, holy, truly and fully good and always incorruptible. And a king whose solution to the hurt, injustice, evil, and lack in this world was not only fully sufficient in fixing it, but was also eternal, never exhausting, and never ending. A type of king whose rule and reign in his kingdom was everything our human hearts are longing for. Whether, like we've seen, our longing is for a meal or a bailout from danger or even liberation from an empire, or our hearts are crying out when news breaks of another school shooting and the tearing apart of innocent lives. The king we long for when the pain of loss, death of a loved one, or loss of our sense of self or security or identity, when the darkness of life overshadows us and we're longing for light and hope and relief and comfort, a true and better and needed king that we ache for when the evil and brokenness in the world out there is too much to bear and when the evil and self-centeredness and guilt in here is too. When this cursed world seems all too lost, what king is there to deliver us, to save us? Who is this king? He is an all-powerful, promise-keeping, pure and incorruptible king who provides the eternal solution we need. A king who rides, again, not a war horse, but a humble donkey, who charges up not the steps of the palace, but the hill of Calvary, and not one who slays his enemy, but one who is slain for them on the cross, our king, who took the fight for our deliverance into the heart of our greatest problem, which is not food, it's not physical danger, it's not even the threats of other opposition around us out there, but the true heart of the problem, the problem of our sinful hearts. Who is this king? His name is Jesus. And he may not be the king we expected or even the king we wanted, but he is the promised king we need, the only king who delivers us from our greatest problem, defeating our sin and its curse in the world by taking on our sin for us, by becoming sin. The Apostle Paul would put it this way, for our sake. Let's just stop there. <laughs> for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On that hill, on that cross, the King of glory traded places with us. He became our sin on the cross, absorbing in his broken, bleeding, naked body. As he gasped for air, as he was becoming the reproach our sins deserve, our King absorbed our punishment, God's holy justice in our place. Why? Because that's the only way. That's the only way that both God's good justice and God's divine mercy 
could meet. Showing that we are so corrupt, so sinful, that Christ had to die for us, but that we are so loved and so pursued that he was willing to die for us for our sake. And as our King Jesus took our sin and our death, he then gives us his sinlessness and his eternal life in us. Ours is a gift just by trusting in, believing in our true and needed king. And it gets even better, folks. Because when he conquered sin on the cross that day, it's not just our guilt and condemnation that is taken away from us. Hallelujah, it is. But the entire curse of sin and death in the cosmos was defeated. That all the evil, all the pain, all the injustice, all the tears, all the death, all the hurt, all the logging, every square inch of this broken, dark, cursed world will one day be fully set free from that curse. How do we know? Because the king who died on the cross is the king who rose again. Resurrected in victory over sin, never to die again. Proof that the curse of sin and death was defeated. And in his resurrection our resurrection, our eternal life. Because friends, when he stepped out of that tomb alive, we saw the first glimpse of the world that is coming to us soon. A world that just like our king is free from the curse. And we will be too when we're with him. All because of what this king did for us on the hill that day. This may not be the king we expect, but this is the king that we need. That's a king worth not just laying coats and leaves down for, but laying everything down for. That's a king where we can cry from our hearts, Hosanna, God save us, because the, profs, the cross proves he did. So I, I want to end our time this way. We kind of started with a question. Let's kind of end with a question. What do you expect when you come to Jesus? Do you expect a Jesus who's really here to help you craft the life you want, to meet your worldly wants and cravings and desires, to grant you those? Or do you have a King Jesus that you keep on the shelf, only wait him to break him out in an emergency when you need him to rescue from you from something? Or is Jesus, the true King Jesus, your true and better King? The one who saved you from your deepest problem, your sin and your condemnation and your separation from God. Your King who rode the donkey, took the cross and rose again, and who sits and rules over everything. Who is this King Jesus to you? So as we conclude our time together, we're going to celebrate communion. And communion is a time for believers, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, to remember our story. So I would encourage you, if you're a believer, to partake. If you don't know and follow Jesus, you can just stay in your seats, no problem. But we're going to do something a little bit different today. Because communion really is a reminder of what our King did to rescue us that it's his body broken and his blood spilled. It reminds us both of our need to be saved 
and that our salvation has been accomplished. It reminds us of who we belong to, who our king is, and what family we are together in Christ. And as you look under your seats, you're going to actually see a palm leaf today. So go ahead and grab that. Because every time we take communion, we're called to examine our hearts, to pause, to let God speak to us and remind us of his gospel that we believe. But today, as you reflect, and I want you in just a minute to reflect and let God speak to you, I want you to ask and let God speak to you. Is there anything in your life that you might be holding on to that just like they laid their palm leaves down to the king, you need to lay down to your king? Something you're holding on to that you need to lay down and worship to king. Maybe you've been holding on to the guilt and shame of your sin and you need to release that guilt and shame and give it to Jesus and experience his grace. Maybe you've been holding on to control over your life trying to act as your own king. And you need to lay that down. That there's a step of faith or maybe an act of obedience or something God's been calling you to that you've been resisting on him on, you've been rejecting him on, and you need to lay that down in, in obedience to your King Jesus. Or maybe there is some habit, some sin in your life that you've been not taken seriously, that you've not been repenting of, that your loving, gracious, merciful Father who wants the best for you is calling you and saying, give it to me, trust me, turn it over to me, lay it down. Whatever it is, take this leaf. Whatever it is, as you spend time with your king right now, whatever you're saying, king, I lay this down before you. I lay my life, I lay my sin, I lay my control, I lay my plans, I lay my finances, I lay my time, I lay my energy, I lay whatever it is, King Jesus, you are the true and better and needed king. Because we lay these things down because he is worthy. He is worthy. So as this music plays, whenever you're ready, whenever you've allowed God to speak to you what it is you need to lay down to your king, I want you to take uh, this palm branch with you. And there's tables around the room here for the communion elements. Take the palm branch with you and go to those tables and you'll see baskets. And I want you to lay the palm branch, branch down as a symbol of laying that thing before the king. And when you lay your branch down, go ahead and pick up your elements. So those who are serving communion, you can go to the tables. But take a moment right now. I want you to think about the true and better needed king who saved you and rescued you by taking your cross and rose again. Let him speak to you. What is he calling you to lay down to him now. And when you're ready, go take your leaf and go get the elements. And then we'll all take communion together as we sit down. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, you are the only king, but you are also the only king that can save us. The king that can make all the darkness go away. Lord, that will make all the injustice one day right that will take all our tears and pains and hurt and bottle them up and one day bring us into a glory where the curse of sin is undone. Even the curse of sin of our guilt and our shame, all because that king who rode the donkey and took the hill took our cross. And we know it's true because he came out of that tomb again. And Lord, we confess we fight to still try to be the kings and queens of our own lives. 
And Lord Jesus, I pray that from the bottom of our heart we would cry out, Hosanna. God save us. And Lord, even now, as we would spend time with you, Spirit, you would impress upon us what is it that we've been holding on to that we need to turn over in trust and in worship to our all-powerful good King. What thing are you calling us to do to take a step? And Lord, as we take communion together, we remember our story, your story and the power that you'll change us. So Lord, speak to us in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take some time with the Lord right now. Allow him to speak to you, and when you're ready, take your palm and go receive the elements.